This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Introducing SmartShield, GoGo's exclusive customer membership program that protects your best in-class, in-flight Wi-Fi system. GoGo's SmartShield membership provides greater cost control, exclusive discounts, and peace of mind with equipment protection. Plus, you can still take advantage of savings of up to $35,000 on your GoGo Advance install. Get technology that adapts as you do, and when you order by December 31st, 2021, you'll have until December 31st next year to install and save. Visit gogo.to slash aopa-podcast to learn more. That's gogo.to slash aopa-podcast. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA holds another aviation high school symposium. And we find that avionics sales are a mixed bag in 2021. Aviation hiring is hot, even on the corporate side. We'll talk about it. And we did an insurance survey and found that older pilots are just as safe as younger pilots. Finally, Tamarack says not so fast to the NTSB. Ian, are you ready to do some Thanksgiving hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Tell us about our first guest, Ian, before we get some Thanksgiving thanks. Yeah, so our guest is Renee O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Renee is a recently retired airline captain, and she has written a book called This Is Your Captain Speaking, What You Should Know About Your Pilot's Mental Health. And her whole focus in retirement is going to be giving pilots tools to mentally and physically survive the really taxing environment of, of professional aviation. So she's sort of a pilot lifestyle coach. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good description. She is also in the GA world. She and her husband own an airplane, and they fly it all over the place. They've been AOPA members for a long time. So uh, we, we had a great time chatting. I think she's a really impressive, and it's going to have some great ideas. I look forward to hearing about that, and that is a topic that we don't talk about very much. So thank you for grabbing Renee for us. That's true. So, David, it's Thanksgiving week. Hopefully, you're going to have a good holiday. Yeah, I know you're going to have a good holiday because you're going flying right after we record this. But we do this every year. Tell us this year, what are you, what are you thankful for? Got a couple of things I want to be thankful for, Ian. You know, we're we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, later in the show, but pilots are flying more mm-hmm. and learning a little bit more since the, the coronavirus pandemic. So, if there's any kind of a sweet spot at all, it it's that pilots are flying more. So, I'm going to be thankful that pilots are flying more. That's a good one. I'm going to go selfish on mine. I'm going to say 
I am thankful for unintended consequences. I just finished this story for the magazine about learning to fly the gyro. We talked about that last time. Yeah, congrats again. Yeah, thanks. That That's something I never thought I would do, never really had a whole lot of interest in, but was something that I just sort of picked up because of the pandemic and and it became an unintended consequence of the pandemic and a really happy one. So I'm thankful for that this year. Well, that worked out for you. Something that I'm thankful for, and this kind of parallels what you were just talking about, you know, getting some new instruction and techniques under your belt. I'm going to be thankful for good instrument instruction and mentorship. I had a great instrument instructor earlier in the year and just recently went flying with my good buddy, Dave Hirschman. And although he's tough, I always learn something. So I'm thankful for that. Nice. Very good. And uh, boy, you're going to make me finish it off. Okay, so I guess I would say I've, I'm thankful for, you know, there, there's been a lot of new developments, not a ton of new airplanes, but a lot of new energy that's come into aviation in the last couple of years. I mean, we've talked about the market. It's totally out of control. And, and part of the reason is because more people are flying. But there's also been, you know, these new designs from Europe and new avionics, Garmin Autoland, we've talked about. It just feels like there's a lot of really positive energy in aviation right now. And so I've been very thankful for that recently. I'll go with you on that, Ian. And I agree because you've actually written stories about, you know, hydrogen technology. I've written a little bit about Mm -hmm. um, battery technology, the Magni X folks. We've talked to them before. And uh, the eVTOL world is, no pun intended, getting ready to take off. So... Yeah, that's a really good point. It's something to be thankful about. A lot of energy in uh, aviation and especially general aviation these days. Yeah, absolutely. So happy Thanksgiving to everybody. The news. Let's get started. The AOPA Aviation High School Symposium, that is a gathering that AOPA puts on part of the You Can Fly program to bring together, not necessarily pilots, some of them are, but not necessarily. These are educators and administrators from around the country to get them engaged, do some professional development all around this aviation high school curriculum that the You Can Fly team has prepared. Yeah, that's right, Ian. And and let me start out by saying this is the seventh annual high school symposium, and you covered the first one. Yeah, in Lakeland. Which was, yeah, it was in Lakeland. And so the story you wrote back then, we had 150 people attend that, educators, and that could be teachers or superintendents, uh, people in the school system. And this time now it was virtual because there were some coronavirus pandemic restrictions on the teachers. Could they get back to the school if they went and traveled to Orlando Mm -hmm. for the in-person seminar? So we did it virtually. But 800 educators, in fact, more than 800 participated in an all-virtual event. And there are still 10 breakout sessions that educators can sign up for and participate in throughout the end of this year. So that's something to be thinking about as well. Yeah, that's very cool. This is a really neat event because uh, my my mom was a teacher, and I remember she would go to these professional development courses. A lot of times they would be, she taught science later in her career, and they would be similar to this. They'd be STEM courses where they learn how to bring experiments into the classroom, things like that. And we've talked about that before, that that's a lot of what goes on at these events when they're in person. She would come back so jazzed after these things and so excited, and she would like sit down and start building curriculum right away. And I think that's exactly what happens here. You know, these educators, they come to this, they get really excited about aviation, about how it can really bring a lot of dynamic information and education into their classrooms. And they come back and immediately learn how to get kids excited about STEM 
using aviation as the hook, which is just such a cool idea. It is, it is. And speaking of exciting, I tell you who brought a lot of excitement to this year's symposium was Stevie Treisenberg, who's a social media icon, but a, a pilot with real chops. She's a CFI and she's a Bonanza owner, and she helped host that with Elizabeth Tennyson from our You Can Fly and, and the AOPA Foundation. And together, it was really neat. I thought they had a good rapport. They moved things along. And Stevie did basically hosted several polls. They were instant polls. And the results were pretty interesting from some of those polls. Most of the teachers that and educators that were attending had been to a previous AOPA high school STEM symposium. And I will say this from covering them, and Ian, you have too, the educators that are participating really like to feed off of the energy that they get from each other. Yes. And that, that's something that you just mentioned with about your mom and, and teaching. And my mom was a lifelong educator as well. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that that was neat. So we had, so this year we have more than 10,000 high school students in more than 300 schools in 44 states participating in the AOPA high school STEM aviation curriculum. Now, why is that important? It's important because the initiative has made diversifying the pilot population a key priority. And out of that, and this goes back to a story that you've written and we've talked about before, 21% of the participants are female. And your story was the seven percenters back then. Mm -hmm. So 21% of the participants are female and about 41% are people of color. So that's getting more people involved in aviation that would not know about aviation. Yeah, that's awesome. That's key. It is key. So mark your calendars right now. Even if you're not a teacher, but you want to help out the community, you can get your local school engaged. November 13th to 15th of next year, it's going to be in Memphis, the symposium. This is at the FedEx facility, but it's going to be presented by Boeing. I think this is going to be very cool. I mean, this is a way for teachers to see just how exciting aviation can be, how technically advanced it is. And so if you want to get your community engaged, definitely go online, check out You Can Fly, and you know, you can pass that on to the teachers in your community and, and get them involved in this program. No charge for the high school STEM mm. curriculum. You just have to convince folks in your community that it's worthwhile. Yeah. And a quick side note, I hope that I get assigned to cover Memphis and Beale Street and Barbecue yeah. and Blues oh, and yeah, everything. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, man. That would be so cool next That'd year, next November. Mark your calendars. All right, so moving on, AEA, the Aircraft Electronics Association, puts out quarterly reports about avionics sales, and their most recent report is... Good news that is surrounded by, I would say, a whole bunch of not-so-good news. So I guess we'll go with the good news first. There was an increase in avionics sales compared to last year. Then I'm going to go with the bad news, Ian, and that's the avionics sales for 2020 were down 26% from 2019. That's pre-coronavirus levels. That was the steepest single-year tumble since the AEA began publishing that quarterly and annual sales data. So if we're looking at the 5.4% uptick and a 26% downtick, yeah. my math ain't great, but that's down about 20% pre-COVID. Yeah, that's it's not good. And, and I think a lot of people maybe are surprised to see that it's not higher, especially if you've called a shop recently. 
chances are they're going to tell you, oh, okay, yeah, we'd love to do the work for you, but it's going to be whatever, two months, three months, six months. Yeah, you're jammed. Yeah, exactly. Until you can get into the shop. So there's a little bit of, okay, what's going on here? I mean, clearly the demand is there. Uh, We're hearing that, you know, the market, like we just said, is up. A lot of those transactions, people are buying the airplanes and they want to get them into the shop immediately to do upgrades. So what's going on? Well, it's the same thing that's going on in the broader economy, and that is there are supply chain issues with some of the manufacturers. Indeed. There are labor challenges with some of the shops. So, you know, I've heard some avionics jobs are looking at like nine-month lead times to get equipment from the manufacturers. That's a long time, especially if you need to, especially if you're a laggard and haven't gotten your ADSB installed yet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, seriously. So I think... I think they're seeing some of the same challenges, and I, and I think it's going to be, I don't know, they're saying it depends on the chip shortage. You know, it's going to be another year, maybe two, until can, things can kind of get back and, and meet demand. Well, Ian, that's an interesting perspective, and let's just think about that for a minute, because you recently wrote a story for APA Pilot Magazine on the fact that a lot of aircraft have increased in value over the past year. Like a Cessna 172, for instance, they're about $100,000 on the used market, for a, a 70s model, you know, for an end model. So thinking about uh, buying one, then upgrading it, and then having to wait so long to upgrade it, uh, that's an issue. The other yes. side of that coin is that with the new technology that we have at our fingertips, it makes flying so much safer. Mm-hmm. And we're already having a pretty safe year. You know, kudos to everyone who's listening to Hangar Talk that's a pilot. Y'all have been great this year. But we could do even better, and with some of that technology, it allows us to keep better situational awareness, but yet we can't install the material and the technology until we we get that supply chain back up and running. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll look at this in another, I would say, year, year and a half and see, and I I bet we'll be back to, you know, pre-COVID levels, but it's going to take some time. Speaking of things bouncing right back to pre-COVID levels, David, you wrote a really good story recently You've been on this quarterly now for a couple of years about hiring trends, and they are big time, big time hiring right now. That's true. And you don't have to look much further than our good buddies at ATP who have opened several flight training centers, including their largest one out in the Fort Worth, Texas area, in Addison, Texas. But more than one third of professional pilots are pursuing careers in corporate aviation, hmm. Ian. And that was Something what... Something we don't gist, talk about a lot. Yeah. Right. That was the gist of this story. And we want to thank Future and Active Pilot Advisors uh, founder, Lewis Smith, a good friend of ours, for some of the data. He says that they found that business aviation accounts for about 37% of the professional pilot population. That's a lot. That's more than a third. So that means about two-thirds of professional pilots are in commercial aviation, you know, flying airliners. But clearly a third, a little bit more than a third, are flying for the Home Depots and the Coca-Colas of the world. And that could be a pretty good gig, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know what's interesting about this? And I have to, and your story did this for me, and I have to, like, you know, hit myself on the head every time I think about corporate aviation because... I've traditionally thought of it. I mean, when I came up through, we thought of corporate aviation as just like you said, the Home Depots, the Cokes, you know, the the whatever, the the Walmarts. But now corporate aviation for a lot of people means fractionals. You know, it means wheels up, yeah. net jets, all the others. And they run, let's call them airline style operations in that there is scheduled time on, scheduled time off, 
really strict duty days. You know, it's a it's a professional operation in that sense. And you could stay closer to home in many of those instances mm-hmm. too. And you don't have to get on a deadhead in the middle of the night or early in the morning and like start in Atlanta. But really, your shift starts in New York City, like a, exactly. a good friend of ours, you know, Jeremy King, and we've had him on the program too. So yeah, you don't have to to do that. You could probably be based uh, out of your own home area in a lot of these instances, not all, but in many, and you still get time off. You still get the benefits. You still get the package of incentives, and you you can pretty much depend on now that. The downside of that might be, in some instances, that you don't really know what your schedule is. If you're, you know, flying corporate, you might, if you're flying for a family, they might be going to Aspen one week and then Europe the next. And exactly. you just don't know. Yeah. So no there's an up, up and down. But huge you, you range. Mean, yeah. Right, right. Huge range. Now, you did mention Wheels Up and uh, Kenny Dichter. We've talked to him before. Wheels Up. Now, this is impressive to me, Ian. So I just want to read this quick stat. You know, it began less than 10 years ago, and there are now more than 2,000 employees with access to 170 owned aircraft and about the same number of managed aircraft and about 1,200 partner aircraft. That's a big company. Yeah, that's big. Big time. Yeah, so these these types of operations are obviously up and coming and, and making that corporate lifestyle flying lifestyle a little more predictable. There are obviously all of those amazing opportunities for the company-owned, family-owned, you know, Gulfstreams and all the other transcontinental sort of jets. But if you're looking for that airline-type, you know, bidding and seven days on, seven days off, that sort of lifestyle corporate aviation has that opportunity now. And you could stay in that in the world of GA, which is so cool. Agreed. And it's just another tool in our tool belt as pilots to think about you know, going corporate instead of commercial. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on. I think we hit that subject pretty tight. Let's move on and talk a little bit about this insurance survey. And I know you've got some specific thoughts about this, Ian, but let's talk about older pilots and some of the negative treatment that they've received from insurance companies. Yeah. So you and I, we read, we get these daily reports from uh, AOPA's membership and pilot service center. So when you call into AOPA, you talk to a tech, they'll gather trends, things that they hear over and over and send those all through the company so that people can really hear what's going on from, from members. Something that we've been hearing continuously recently, and not surprisingly, is that older pilots are having major problems obtaining quality and affordable aviation and you know owner insurance. And so AOPA put out a survey recently, something like, this is an impressive number, was it 30,000 people, I think, replied? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 30,000 replied. That's pretty, that's pretty stout for a yeah. survey result. Yeah, exactly. So... What, they're, what the survey found is that people over 70 are having these problems, and that kind of jives with what we're hearing anecdotally. But also interesting in the survey is that they found that these people over 70 are flying more, just as safe. They have higher levels of certification. They've owned aircraft for longer. So traditionally, you would think these are the people who are more insurable. Yes, you would think so. You would think that the rates would go down for the folks over yes. 70 as compared to your 300 days into your 69th birthday. Mm-hmm. Your insurance is going to be one rate, and then as soon as you turn 70, it, it goes through the roof. 
But, you know, folks over 70 have flown an average of nearly 70 hours in the past year, a survey has found. Yeah. And what, what blew my mind was that, that the flip side of that was that more than half of the pilots were flying less than 50 hours for the folks who are younger or, or flying less hours. So I'm not great at math. We said earlier in the program I'm not, but even still, <laughs> it's that's a, it's about— It's a disclaimer we have to say it once a, yeah, once a show. At least. But that's about 40% more hours being flown yes. by people who are older. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? They've had their careers— they have their savings. They're retired now. They own an airplane. They have time to go out and actually use it. Well, that's a good point. They do have yeah. the time, the, the yeah. luxury of the of time. They put their time in. They've retired, and now they can do something they love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think people—this is confusing, and people call all the time. They're 70. They just Their rates just doubled, or they were dropped by their company. I will say, having done just a couple of stories about insurance in the past, that one thing that I've learned is that so car insurance, we know, because the pool is huge, right? We're talking millions of people. They have really detailed data about exactly how safe this cohort of people are. So we know that young male drivers are particularly bad. You know, We know that whatever, people who have had two accidents are going to be maybe have a third or people who have tickets might lead to accidents, whatever the case is that, that lets them price insurance. Aircraft insurance is nothing like that. Underwriters work highly on experience, on their guts, on sort of general trends they read, because the data pool is just not large enough to have these really detailed pools. And so when you're calling and you say, well, I'm 70 years old, I've got a King Air, that underwriter is going to say, well, okay, I don't feel like taking the risk. And it's really a personal transaction at that point. And so you, your broker, their job is, you're, you know, you work with a broker, your job is to say, hey, I go to yearly training. I do all this extra maintenance. I got additional certifications recently. Your job is to convince them that you're insurable and and that you should be and that you're worth that risk. Well, case in point, more than 75% of those surveyed pilots that are over 70 have an instrument rating mm-hmm. com- compared to 66% under 70. So that's about 10% more pilots over 70 are instrument rated. Yes. Which means they have, theoretically, more time, more experience. And they're theoretically safer. Right, and more training. Yeah, and a higher rate of ATPs, too. Yeah, 50 versus 50% of people over 70 had an ATP that were surveyed and, and uh, or a commercial certificate uh, compared to 40% under 70. So, yeah, you'd think they'd be more insurable. Will our folks who are older than 70 more likely to have been involved in an accident in the past five years than younger pilots? It's a good question. Same. I'm going to say same. They were not more likely. So I would, I would go with what you said. No more likely to be in an accident than, than anyone else. Yeah. So I know we've, we've totally overdone on the subject, but it's something that I obviously I think we're all passionate about because it feels a little unfair, I'll say. Two really quick things. If you're over 70 or you're approaching 70 that you can do to help yourself, do not drop your insurance, and then try and get it again, because that's a problem. Yes. We've talked to underwriters before and people in the industry. They've said, stay with your current carrier. Make no changes. Yep. Stick it out. Really important. So even if you think you're going to go up 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever the case may be, don't 
make it a point just to drop it and say, well, you know, forget it. And I'm going to go with somebody else because there's a good chance that you're not going to get insurance from somebody else. And the other thing that you probably were going to mention is that continue to take training and sign yes. up for some of these courses. It's like if, if you're a Bonanza pilot, sign up for the specific Bonanza safety classes that you can sign up for. The Mooney folks have the same thing. I know it's prevalent throughout the industry, but that training really not only does it keep you proficient, but the insurance underwriters look at that as a very big bonus. And you know what? You could do that on any in a, in a smaller level, too. You can participate in the, the FAST, F-A-A-S-T program by the, the FAA, you know, the safety program that I participate in about once a month with the Westminster Aerobats Club. Yeah. And you could just jump into any of these online safety courses. And that all, all that stuff makes a big difference at the end of the year. Yeah. And make sure your broker knows about it. Yep. That's exactly right. Okay, David, Tamarack. Oh, yeah. This is just a fascinating case. And we're not going to get deep into the weeds here because, boy, we could just spend hours talking about it. But Tamarack, these are the active winglets. I think we may have talked about it when the accident happened. There was a fatal crash back in 2018. The NTSB just put out its final report saying that the active winglets were the cause of the accident. Tamarack is disputing that claim. Yeah, and the winglets are called the Tamarack Active Technology Load Alleviation System, or ATLAS. And so there was the fatal crash that you just mentioned, but there were some other uncommanded roll incidents that happened as well with these winglets. And to explain the winglets a little bit more, the active technology of the winglet, the wing itself on these Cessna citations is extended a little bit. The winglet sweeps up, you know, as you would see on a commercial jet airliner, and the wing articulates, the outer part of that wing articulates a little bit. So, uh, yeah, the accident was uh, pretty well known in, in 2018. And like you said, Tamarack disputed that in uh, detail in a November 4th press release. And I think there's just a lot more to come on that story. Yeah. And we also, we, we also have additional data and, and, and stories that we are still working on including one that we want to throw to our listeners. Tom Horn has also flown in a King Air equipped with these Atlas winglets. And there's a story in an upcoming AOPA pilot magazine that details his experience in a King Air, which is another, which is another a whole other application that, that folks could use the, the winglets for. So Yeah, this there's a lot of interesting elements to this story, one of which is, that so to go very quickly back through the history, after the accident, the FAA grounded all these Tamarack equipped citations and Tamarack applied for bankruptcy protection during this period, but then also sold. So there were 98 installations, I think, when this happened. They sold like 50 more during during this bankruptcy, during the time they were grounded. So people have such faith in these things that even while the FAA grounded them and said, wait a second, we gotta have a fix here, they they ordered another 50, which is a relatively high number, I think. It is. And the application the, the King Air line of aircraft basically are used by the military. Yeah. And so this is kind of opens the door to having some some different possibilities for the King Airs and what it ends up happening. The Atlas system, basically, why is it even uh, important or desirable in the first place, which we didn't talk about? Mm. And what it does is allows an aircraft to get up to a higher level in altitude quicker Thus, once you're up there, save more fuel. And it could even extend on the King Air side, it could extend flight time and range by 
an hour to more than three or four hours. It was huge. Yeah, the numbers are huge. Yeah, so that could play a big role when you're trying to look about sustain, looking at sustainable aviation fuel, combining that with the technology to get you up higher quicker in those kind of uh, aircraft, the turbine aircraft. It, it, it looks like it could be a win-win situation for folks who do a lot of turbine flying. Yeah, yeah. So we will keep following this and what happens with this NTSB case. This is, I think, just really interesting for us because, you know, you hear about it all the time. The NTSB says, well, this is what happened with the accident. And it just, everybody moves on. And it's really unusual to hear a company turn around and say, no, 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 we totally disagree. And here's why we disagree. And they show them data to, to prove what they think is is the correct version of events. That's a good point. And one other thing that you could relate this to, uh, the NTSB came out with a finding on the Kobe Bryant uh, crash, the helicopter crash. But then there were some suggestions that you know the helicopter industry could incorporate some of the, the warning technology. And, and it's been available for a long time. But the question is, you know, how can the industry grab that technology, make it, uh, I don't want to say make it mandatory, but make it good practices to have that installed. So it's a pretty deep subject here when you talk about what the NTSB says or, or doesn't say. Yeah, very true. All right, David, let's bring on Renee. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, Renee is a retired airline captain and has worked as a, a pure, I don't know what the exact term for the airlines is, but basically somebody to help guide other airline pilots through some of these professional resources and and has since in her retirement started this company and written this book about guiding new pilots through all of the physical and mental challenges of a professional flying career. So, Renee, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I think this is a really important topic. So tell us a bit about yourself. You were a commercial airline pilot for a number of years. Yes. Well, first of all, Ian, thank you for having me as your guest. I'm thrilled to be here. And my background is, as you said, 34 plus years as an airline pilot, a commercial airline pilot. I flew 727s, 747s, Airbus 300, 310, and my latest was uh, the Boeing 767. I actually started out in general aviation. Oh, okay. So not from a military standpoint. Where, what did you what did you do before the airlines? Well, I started in the airlines at a very young age. Actually, a flight attendant. After my school, I decided that I wanted to see the world, which absolutely upset my parents because 47 years ago, uh, that wasn't a good track to be on. Yeah. So uh, my love of aviation started very early. I just didn't know it was going to be in the front of the cockpit. Fantastic. And we've talked to you, you and your husband are involved in GA today. You guys own an airplane. Yes, we own an airplane. And my husband has been a member of AOPA since 1985. Fantastic. That's great. Okay. So, but we're talking today because you've started a company and, and you're an author now, written a book. Yes. It's called, This Is Your Captain Speaking. And your your passion, your retirement job is all about pilot wellness. And, and it's a topic that I don't think we talk enough about. Um, specifically, you focus a bit on, on mental health. So how did that become important for you? And, and how did you get involved? 
Well, that's a very good question. I got involved in mental health because as a volunteer pilot in peer-to-peer groups in my airline, I heard stories in and, in and outside of the cockpit from men and women who are struggling with mental health. And as the regulations are currently, they feel that their hands are tied. So I decided that I'll take my experience of hearing these stories, my education, and my passion for being the voice of the voiceless and turn that into a book and get the message out to the world. So you before the company and, and before the book, you did a bit of, and you sort of touched on this, a bit of, I guess, what we would call maybe sort of peer health counseling, peer mental health counseling. So how did that work? In an airline, they are very open and available to forming peer groups, and they have various names depending on what airline you land in. In my airline, it was SERP, which is Critical Incident Response Program, and PATH, which was Pilot Assistant Team Hotline, and Pro Standards. And each one of these committees pretty much have a mission. Uh, SERP, for example, Critical Incident Response Program, that was designed for a pilot that was struggling with a job. For example, a, a failed check ride. A failed check ride, not only once, maybe twice, and he or she was on the verge of losing their job. So, what a peer would do would come in and have a conversation with this pilot to see if there was anything else going on in his life. You know, we we struggle with stress. I mean, stress, anxiety, depression, worldly, but as pilots, we're no different than the general population. And so what, I guess, as somebody from the outside, my sense is always that as a pilot, it's like, well, suck it up. Mm, um, yeah. You got to work today and, you know, you got to go from A to B and you're going to do it. And so it, were there, I guess, was it a little more open than that? I mean, were people able to admit they were having a really hard time, you know, with, with anxiety? They Maybe they had some depression and they wanted to talk to somebody? Or was it all really people held stuff close to the vest and, and they didn't talk about that sort of thing? Oh, all of the above, Ian. You know, there was a time way back when that astronauts and pilots were considered having the right stuff, you know, that was intellectually and that was behaviorally. But what we're discovering is that the right stuff of yesteryear isn't actually is actually the wrong stuff of today. You know, the right stuff is taking care of your whole self mentally as well as physically so you can be the best you. So to answer your question directly, I was giving you just a little history there. Pilot mental health is not a popular subject. And when a pilot is struggling, uh, they may or may not um, bear their souls. Because let's face it, pilots don't trust their union. They don't trust their company. They certainly are not going to trust a peer, you know, even though a peer is supposed to be there to be an advocate, uh, because the bottom line is it could impact their livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I guess when somebody comes to you, did you have resources that that you could point them to did you did you was it a 
a confidential space or was it a situation where it's like they really were limited because you had to report certain things? I mean, how how did that work? Good question. No, we did not as a committee, we did not report to the company. So that was, of course, very good. But as a committee, we were trained to be, of course, empathetic, but we were no more than a resource center. We couldn't follow the pilot through their journey. The best that we can do is get them to the right source. And the right source may be the chief pilot. It may be the manager. It may be a mental health professional. But circling back to pilots are not very open and available. First of all, most of them are men and men it's not as though they don't have emotions, but they're <laughs> <laughs> they're not very comfortable talking about their emotions. So yeah. we have that going on. But when you, you guide them to a resource, they're still not open and available to talking to anyone professional because they don't know if that might lead them down a rabbit hole to fighting for their job back. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, that's right. So you've got this sort of double hit of the type of person that comes into the profession and and what they think is expected of them, but also these sort of uh, institutional restrictions in terms of what the company may allow and what the FAA may allow in terms of mental health. So I'm sure you heard very often that it's like, well, yeah, I would love to go to a therapist or I would love to, you know, be treated, but it's like, I can't do that. I'll, I'll lose my medical. Exactly. And we do know, and you know, I'm asked all the time, well, I'm not asked all the time, but there are demands of the job um, that lead to mental health. And yeah, uh, uh, the short answer is that the demands of the job are inherently considered dangerous and stressful as being a pilot. You know, in fact, being a pilot is considered the second most dangerous profession as reported by industrial safety hygiene and the third most stressful job, according to Business Daily News. And those were both articles in November 2020 issues. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, then we had the added pandemic crisis, which has exposed flight crews to a particularly high psychological and psychosocial stressors. And, and a few that are worth mentioning, if you would allow me are, I have this in my book, I write about this in a book, are increased workloads due to intensive operations, emergency operations, changing cooperation in team climate, uh, the risk of infection due to contact with potentially infected workers, additional workflows, long and irregular work hours, reduced rest opportunities, the potential of fatigue combined with situations at home. And we can't forget, you know, home quarantine for those that were affected or exposed to the virus. And for some over in Europe, for example, I have many friends over there, their job was was not secure. So they had loss of income and potentially a loss of employment for some. So those stressors can lead to you know, psychological strange, which can negatively affect the crew members' ability to safely perform their jobs. Yeah. Well, you make it sound like a dream job today. 
yeah. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's it's a tough time. It, um, it is a tough time. Well, and it sort of it transitions nicely in, a little bit into your company and, and what you guys provide. So, piloting to well being is the company, and and we talked about this a little bit. You you're interested. I mean, you 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 hit so many pilots kind of at the tail end of their crisis, right? They've hit maybe they think, okay, this is my last ditch effort. I'm gonna I have to go to the you know the team at, at the company, but you want to touch people earlier. You you want to reach them earlier and and prevent a lot of these problems. And so what what can you do? I mean, what what can pilots do um early in their careers to to try and avoid some of these issues? Thank you for asking about that. Piloting to well-being, our team is focused on preventative rather than reaction. So we want to get to that pilot or to the general aviation pilot before these issues or these struggles or these challenges really become habits in their life. You know, I'll, I'll use the example of a person who decides to climb a mountain. They need training. Not only do they have the technical training, but they have those non-technical skills that enable them to conquer climbing the mountain. And they have a mentor. And that mentor keeps them pumped up and they keep them with good, they teach them how to self-talk, they teach them visualization, goal setting, stress management, motivation, fatigue management, and personal care. That mentor can't, can't climb the mountain for that mountain climber, but they, and that mountain climber can't get up that mountain, let's call it Mount Everest, without that mentor. You know, and another example kind of weaved into P2W, that's what we call it, is a sports psychologist who works with athletes to improve performance will not venture into any technical skills. You know, there's the technical skill side of the athlete, and then there's the non-technical skills person like the sports psychologist. So personally, as a mentor, you know, PGW wants to teach those non-technical skills because that's what it's going to take for a pilot to reach the level of excellence. Hmm. So it's an acknowledgement that there's a whole range of skills and techniques beyond the technical that they learn, beyond you know shooting the approach and learning the FMS and everything else that they really need in order to be successful in the career. Absolutely. I have seen firsthand that poor well-being and poor good health is tied into poor performance in the airplanes, general aviation, as well as commercial aviation. You mentioned a little bit mentoring and in the role of mentoring. How important do you think that is both for a a professional setting and a recreational setting? Not only do I think it's important, I think it is a very hot topic today. And it's a great question. So let's let's talk a, a minute about what is mentoring. You know, there's currently many definitions of mentoring in use throughout various professions. And in a broad sense, mentoring consists of a senior individual, the mentor, offering advice and encouragement and guidance and support to a junior individual. But it also involves career support and role modeling. So for example, my style of mentoring as a professional aviator for 34 plus years is role modeling good health well-being in and out of the cockpit through my professionalism. For example, it's not mandatory, but it's protocol to go out to dinner with the captain or the first officer on a layover. 
And it is also protocol, not mandatory, to go somewhere else after dinner, usually to the bar to consume an adult beverage after dinner. So as a role model, I typically either don't go to the bar or if I go, I have one adult beverage and go back to my room. That's one example how I mentor when I'm on the road off the airplane. So somebody who, you know, is just starting out and, and they're just sort of getting their legs, you know, what, what recommendations do you have for them? I mean, what, what's a, a kind of key takeaway that they can have in order to set themselves up on the right path? Great question. Let me start off with well-being. I get the question all the time, well, what the heck is well-being? Which is a great question. And well-being has three categories. It's biological, psychological, and social. Biological meaning sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And under the umbrella of the psychological portion, it's stress management. And social would be relationships and community. So for simplicity, I'll refer to these pillars, I'll call them pillars, as body for the biological pillar, mind for the psychological pillar, and social. So what pilots can do to get on top of their challenges and and the specific things that I would offer, whether it's general aviation or professional piloting, is awareness, education, and mentoring are the ways the pilot can get on top of their challenge. What P2W offers is mentoring skills through CRM and non-technical skills for pilots to obtain the excellence that I talked about earlier in the show. So if you focus, if they focus on those three pillars, body, mind, and social, that's a good start in being prepared for a, whether it's general aviation or commercial aviation career. Great. Yeah. Renee, that's, that's great advice. And, and thanks so much for taking the time and talking about this, uh, this really important topic. My pleasure. David, I, I, I'm just really impressed with Renee. I think she's uh, very smart. It's a great idea. It's like you said, a subject we just, it's very taboo still in aviation, and it really should not be that way. I like hearing about the tools to survive the lifestyle, and I think we'll hear more about them. And thank you again, Ian, for grabbing Renee for us and for our listeners. Yeah. All right, David, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.